middle of a series of sermons on marriage. And today we're going to look at courtship and falling in love. We're going to look to see what the Bible might teach us about courtship and falling in love. So let's start by thinking about courtship. Courtship is an old-fashioned word. I'm going to use it today as a, as a general term, applying both to a period of time, that period of time in which a romantic relationship is established, that process of falling in love, as well as to courtship behaviors, the things that we do, such as asking people out and going on dates. Courtship, basically, is a biological fact of nature, Essentially, all birds and mammals have courtship season, rituals and behaviors, and so do we. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. That's great. <laughs> <clears throat> well, in contrast to other mammals, human beings have no fixed courtship behaviors. Rather, we have courtship behaviors that vary enormously from culture to culture. However, traditional courtship rules across cultures have tended to follow the following themes. Firstly, courtship is undertaken under close supervision from the community, especially from the parents of the girl. Formal approval and or permission is often required from the community, that is, from the parents as well as from her, before a man may court a woman. Secondly, the courting couple is responsible to the community for their behavior while courting. Unbecoming or inappropriate behavior will be met with correction and a temporary loss of freedom. The courting couple is unlikely to be allowed to meet privately, out of sight of others, especially during the early stages of courtship. A chaperone may be formally or informally required. Although the courting couple is allowed more freedom as the commitment increases. In our times, in contrast, we occasionally talk about dating someone. Dating is one modern form of courtship. Uh, it is a product of post-World War II American culture. The basic unit of dating is, unsurprisingly, the date. Dates are a somewhat necessary manifestation of American culture insofar as lots of Americans do not expect to attend social functions unaccompanied. Therefore, if you're going somewhere, you need a date. You might be going to a film, a ballet, an opera, a party, a funeral, a prom, an awards ceremony, a barbecue, a sports event, a dance, a wedding, or a bar mitzvah. But you're going to need a member of the opposite sex to accompany you as your date. A couple on a date on the first occasion, therefore, might barely even know each other. But couples with an interest in each other, wanting to have some kind of commitment, move from dating through to going steady. Dating is thus both a method by which you find your partner as well as the method by which you pursue courtship. Dating is distinctly different from traditional courtship in the following ways. Firstly, it is socially acceptable for a couple to go out, out on a date without the knowledge or permission of anyone else they know. Permission is not needed nor sought from the family. Secondly, it's socially acceptable for a couple to be totally by themselves, in private, without any form of chaperone or supervision from date number one. 
Thirdly, dating doesn't necessarily imply exclusivity or faithfulness to one person. It's socially acceptable in America to have a different date for all of the different social events in your calendar. Therein, American males and females can find themselves in the early stages of courtship with a number of people simultaneously. And so, in American culture, the question, are you dating, doesn't necessarily mean, are you courting anyone in particular at the moment, but so much as it means, are you actively involved in seeking a partner? Now, as you hold the phone... could be important. As you may well have noticed, Australia actually technically does not have a dating culture. It is acceptable to attend any social event unaccompanied, just as, a so, as, as it is acceptable to attend, attend accompanied. And in my experience, and perhaps to the best of my knowledge, uh, young Australians typically socialize in mixed gender groups, possibly formed by way of school, church, university, or workplace association. So typically, when a young man asks a young woman out on a date, it is because he is ready to declare a very particular interest in her. And a young woman might only accept the invitation if she's willing to entertain that interest. A couple might go on a small number of dates, one, two, or three, before deciding that they're in an exclusive relationship and that they are typically boyfriend and girlfriend. Australians might go on dates, but they do not date in the American sense of it being acceptable in Australia, um, or sorry, in the sense of it being acceptable in America to find even a stranger to accompany you to a social event. Otherwise, dating or courtship uh, in mainstream Australia follows American dating in being a form of socialization that's often done in private, unaccompanied unsupervised, and with little accountability to the wider community. Uh, post the sexual revolution of the 1960s, in mainstream Australia, young people are frequently desiring and pursuing romantic and sexual relationships well before the end of high school. Relationships pursued with little or no parental supervision and often accompanied by a high degree of experimentation. Hookup culture is becoming increasingly mainstream in America and in Australia, and it is especially associated with universities and with university residential colleges. It is a development of, it is an evolution of dating culture, but now allowing for sexual congress without any expectation of attachment or obligation or of any kind of ongoing exclusive relationship. Social media, combined with the smartphone platform, has possibly been one factor in its advance. It's, it's worth noting, I think for us it's worth noting the rise of hookup culture because it is one manifestation of the notion, now widespread in the Western world, that all adults have the right to sexual expression and that indeed these needs may be legitimately fulfilled either inside or indeed outside of any kind of relationship. Well, what are, what are we to make of this as Christians? Well, let, let's go to the Bible. The Old Testament says nothing directly about courtship. Uh, broadly speaking, the Old Testament Israelites seemed to have adhered to traditional courtship expectations as I've already described them. Uh, 
Courtship was a family affair involving parental permission, community supervision, blessing, and organization. As something that affected the entire community, courtship was undertaken, so to speak, in front of an audience, an audience to whom the couple were accountable. Throughout the Old Testament, however, we do see dozens and dozens of couples come together, for better or for worse, including, of course, Adam and Eve, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Jacob and Leah, Joseph and Achsanath, Ruth and Boaz, David and Abigail, David and Bathsheba, etc., etc., etc. If we were wanting to distill principles about courtship from these stories, we'd need to go very carefully because these stories are actually not about courtship that we should copy them, but rather these stories are about God's saving work in history that we should trust him. Nevertheless, I'm going to take that risk. I'm going to distill some some principles and I'm going to tell you what they are hoping that they are perhaps trustworthy. So let's have a go. Firstly, one principle is that God in the Bible is the loving matchmaker. Sometimes his work in bringing couples together may be mysterious. Sometimes it might be obvious. It was an astonishing answer to prayer that brought Isaac and Rebekah together. It's a lovely and remarkable story, Genesis 24. Four amazing coincidences brought Ruth and Boaz together. Clearly God's hand at work. Astonishing answers to prayer, amazing coincidences. Well, actually, such things are commonly found in the stories of how people continue to find each other, fall in love, and get married. And in the face of such things and in the light of such experiences, marrying marrying couples continue after Adam in Genesis 2 to have aha moments where they realize, yes, this is the one. This one's the one meant for me. So that together with the whole community and in the words of Jesus, the people can say of the marrying couple, what God has brought together, let no one rend asunder. God is the loving matchmaker. The flip side of God's matchmaking ministry is that God also exercises the right to say whom you cannot marry. For many of us who are married, I think that we may see God's hand in our past lives as a hand of protection, working to make sure that we didn't marry certain individuals. Not because there was anything wrong with them, but rather and simply that God just had a better person in mind for them and for us. Furthermore, God says to his people in the Old Testament, there are some nations you may not intermarry with. Because such action would lead to spiritual danger. Are there people that Christians are not allowed to marry? Well, we'll look at that question, which turns out to be a surprisingly complex question, next week. And just in case you're considering it, I'd like to tell you that no one may marry a close relative. The reason for that is that you cannot form a new family with someone who is an existing family member. As sovereign matchmaker, God can say no, just as he can say yes. Uh, Yet, and nevertheless, and without contradicting anything that I've just said, choosing a spouse is also a matter of human choice too, a matter of informed consent. Joe and I got married because we wanted to, as well as trusting that, God wanted us to. 
and that indeed he had brought us together. And if choosing a spouse is a matter of choice, then it's good to choose wisely. That's the second principle. It's good to choose wisely. Esau chose unwisely in marriage in Genesis 28, and he paid a heavy price for that. Also, in the final, chapter, uh, in the final chapters of the book of Proverbs, King Lemuel's mum encourages him to seek a bride who is clever and capable of good godly character and to value such things ultimately as more important than charm and beauty. And in the New Testament, Jesus says directly that the person who chooses not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God makes a better choice. And Paul teaches that single people serving Jesus wholeheartedly are actually happier if they do not marry. But both Jesus and Paul concede that it is normal and good to marry. A last principle that I think we can distill from the Bible is that purity is foundational. This means that everything we do in courtship is about loving people and being concerned for their welfare. Paul Paul writes to Timothy, who is a young man, but also the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to him, telling him to treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. In the book of Ruth, uh, in the Old Testament, Boaz treats Ruth with absolute purity. Indeed, he treats her, even though she's in a very vulnerable position, Boaz treats Ruth as, as, as a sister or as an adult daughter, offering her acceptance, approval, protection, provision, and attention without there being any question of there being an ulterior motive. Absolute purity. Boaz, what Boaz does, therefore, is he creates the relationship and he creates an unconditional friendship. Ruth, in contrast, defines the relationship, redefining their friendship into marriage. Ruth does not propose to Boaz, but Boaz does propose to Ruth because Ruth has told him to. And as a general principle, I think that's a very good one. When it comes to courtship, the job of the man is to create a friendship. And the job of the woman is to define that friendship, redefining it into a romance if and when she is ready. And men should only propose when they've been told to. Please note, I'm not offering this as a law. I'm not into prescribing gender-specific roles but rather I am trying to discern and to describe what might be, generally speaking, freeing and useful. So if you find that freeing and useful, hold on to it. If you don't, that's fine. Let's uh, uh, leave courtship for a moment and turn our attention then to falling in love. Uh, Several people, uh, lots of people in the Old Testament are described as falling in love madly, deeply, truly, Isaac fell in love with Rebekah, Jacob with Rachel, Shechem with Dinah, Michal with David, Ammon with Tamar. Fierce, passionate infatuations. However, all of these relationships actually were difficult, and three of the five were disastrous. On this evidence alone, one would have to be extremely cautious about romantic or erotic love. 
And you know, except for Western cultures, our collective, our collective human wisdom is that marrying for love is an extremely risky business. Family, connections, wealth, now you're on much safer ground. And the Bible would offer us no other view on the matter, really, if it wasn't for one remarkable piece of literature, Song of Songs. Song of Songs celebrates romantic, sexual, erotic love, and it does so gloriously. And so it answers for us this question. Yes, there is a place. There is a place in the Christian understanding of marriage, an important place for romantic love, for falling in love. There is, a, uh, there is a place for that wonderful season of insanity, that time and season that we call falling in love. And in order to learn more, though, uh, let's um, come to grips with what this book is and what this book says. Well, what is it? Song of Songs is eight chapters of love poetry. There are three voices. The principal voice is the voice of a young woman. She is an orchardist. She cares for her family's vineyard and fruit trees. She is called the Beloved, uh, as the subtitles in our NIV few Bibles call her, or perhaps she, I think, actually, in our Bibles today. Isn't it she? Yes. Then there's the voice of her lover, he, or the lover, and he is a young shepherd. The third voice is the voice of the community, friends. Uh, the poems, in essence, celebrate the agony for this young couple of separation and the ecstasy of finding each other again after being reunited. Yes, falling in love is like that. You can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't concentrate on your work because your newfound love is your obsession. Solomon is mentioned three times, but he's a distant character. Um, he's in the background, referred only for the purposes of making a comparison. Yet the title of the book is Solomon's Song of Songs. That doesn't mean that he wrote it or that it is about him. It means that this book is part of what's technically known as wisdom literature, Solomon's Library. The purpose of this book is wisdom. The, the wise person knows all about falling in love. So far, so good. Uh, but then it gets difficult. Uh, in fact, now it gets shocking. Um, modern readers might be shocked by the imagery. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, none missing. <laughs> My breasts are like towers, etc. Well, that's because Hebrew imagery is not visual, but rather about meaning. Towers bring security and comfort. I'm not saying that the poetry is shocking. You might say that if you think it's shocking. But no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's shocking in other ways. Firstly, there's no mention of God. I'm not really sure what to do with that. So let's move on. Secondly... <laughs> Secondly, there's no mention of marriage. Um, it's clear that the young couple are not yet married. They live separately and they must steal whatever they time, at the time they have alone. They must steal it as a precious gift. 
The, the young couple are probably engaged, for the young man speaks to his beloved as my sister, my bride. Also, their commitment to each other is recognized by others. The community, represented by the voice of the friends, well, their first words in the book are, we rejoice and delight in you. We, we will praise your love more than wine. So unambiguously, this couple's courtship is under the scrutiny of the community, but has their support, approval, and encouragement. But returning to the fact that this young couple aren't married, this actually might be quite shocking because clearly they have a detailed knowledge of what it is like to kiss, caress, and embrace each other. They have an intimate and detailed knowledge of each other's bodies, including some erogenous zones and bodily fragrances. Clearly, this couple does get to spend time alone and in a way that we may not be quite prepared for, they're able to make good use of it. And this brings us to a third shock. This kind of thing is not being censured, but rather it's being celebrated. And it is. And the book is unashamedly about erotic love. I mean, we're not waxing lyrical here about brotherly love. We're not talking about loving your neighbor here. This isn't about king and country and duty and honor. Rather, this is about erotic love, about being in love, falling in love. In a book that's only eight chapters long, breasts are mentioned eight times. Given this subject matter, a polite, well-mannered person would surely show some shame, some embarrassment. But there is no shame. There is no embarrassment. Here is the Bible saying, her breasts are like Bambi, twin fawns of a gazelle, like pieces of fruit. I'm going to climb that tree, take hold of that fruit. Chapter 7. Here is the Bible saying such things without the slightest bit of self-consciousness, shame or embarrassment. And this brings us to the fourth shock. It ain't just the man talking dirty here. It, it ain't just the bloke who's got his pants on fire. The girl's saying it too. Or to put that in technical language... Here we have gender equality in terms of experience and desire. Now, in patriarchal societies, men are expected to lust after women. But for a woman to express sexual appetite in similar terms and with equal vitality, that's deeply problematic for patriarchy. As you may well know, Victorian women were expected to lie back and think of England. And as you may also know, in many places in the world, they try to fix this problem with scalpels. Our text today was written in the context of patriarchy, but is deeply corrosive to its values. And just to point out the obvious, there's a heck of a lot here that is inconsistent with both traditional and contemporary understandings of courtship. But if this is wisdom, what is being taught? Well, we should be extremely cautious in our conclusions because in this case, everything that is said is being said by way of poetry and poetry is deliberately poetical. It's something that is experienced and interpreted subjectively. It means different things to different people and that's the whole point of it. But perhaps, again, let's take some risks. Perhaps this, this morning, 
um, I might say four things. Firstly, it is wonderful and a gift from God when a new couple has the serious hots for each other. It isn't shameful and embarrassing. It is lovely. Secondly, it is also wonderful when the two people in question are close, like-minded friends who also desperately want to rip each other's clothes off. That's what the woman tells us, chapter 5, verse 6. This is my lover, this is my friend. And that's a very good place to start. You know, some marriages are based just on sexual attraction. And some marriages are based just on friendship. And I'm not saying that can't work. But undoubtedly what's best is when you have both real intimate friendship and real chemistry at the same time. That's a good place to start. Thirdly, falling in love, erotic, romantic love, it's a lot like fire. There's a refrain in the book that we read three times. O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not play with people's feelings. Do not flirt for the heck of it. Be careful with this stuff. And probably most importantly of all, do not fall in love with falling in love. And fourth and last, courtship and falling in love would seem to necessarily involve delighting in love talk as well as exploring, at least to some degree, each other's bodies. I will argue in a sermon yet to come that we are not free to have sex before marriage. But if, on the other hand, we piously decide that we're not even going to kiss before our wedding day, that could be unwise. Somewhere a line needs to be drawn. A line that must be drawn and must be drawn so that no one is grieved or offended. Not the boy, not the girl, not the community, not the Holy Spirit. Where is that line to be drawn? Well, that's something that you can talk about over lunch today. <laughs> For me, it's time to draw the line on this talk and close by way of just some concluding thoughts. As Christians, we are not free to simply conform to worldly understandings of courtship and romantic behavior, just as we are not free to simply conform to worldly understandings of anything else not of how we spend our money, not of how we treat our spouse, not of how we treat our neighbor, nor how we treat our environment. As Christ's people, we do things differently. But how differently? Well, perhaps the most obvious thing from our texts today is that when we're involved in courtship and falling in love, we are answerable to our families and communities. Do your sons and daughters need your permission to go on a date? If not, why not? If so, why so? Too much privacy too early may be dangerously inappropriate. And supervision, especially with respect to the young or with respect to a new relationship, may not only be necessary, it might be loving and kind. Yet privacy is needed too and not inappropriate. This is stuff uh, for us to think about, pray about, talk about, the end, amen.